You may have figured this out by now. But I am not fancy. My wife, uh, she will oftentimes ask me, you know, what, what do you want for dinner tonight? And usually, because I was raised by um, people who, I don't know, don't have taste buds or I don't know what it is. We ate the same thing, like a lot. And that's fine. Like, I grew up on it. I'm totally fine. We eat chicken nuggets and french fries four days a week. I wouldn't bother me a bit. In fact, my daughter, my oldest daughter, she's the same way. We got her a sign, in fact, for her room that says, uh, Nugs, not drugs. Right? Nuggets. Um, yeah. And cheeseburgers and, you know, it's, it's, we, we ate very normal things a lot. And so when she asks me this, I oftentimes say, uh, I don't care. Because I honestly don't. I like food. I don't particularly care in what format it comes in. Um, food's generally good. I'm, I'm happy with it. Uh, occasionally, because I know she likes to please me, I will figure out what we have, you know, roughly, get an idea of where we're at. And I will suggest something that she could easily make from the things that we have. Sometimes it's things that I really like. Oftentimes for my birthday, she would make uh, beef stroganoff. It's one of my favorites. Oh, man, that stuff's good. Say food. This food's good. Um, and when I feel really annoying, which is a lot, I will say, baked Alaska. I have no idea what baked Alaska is. I don't know if I'd like it if I ever tried it. I don't know what it's made of or how to do it. Uh, I'm pretty sure we don't have the ingredients at our house, nor do I intend on my wife to go out and figure out how to make it. It just sounds fancy to me, and so that's what I say. I say, baked Alaska, and she laughs. Sometimes. And she goes on her way and makes whatever she's going to make. And that's happy with me. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. He says, Now it happened as they went uh, that he entered a certain village. That is, uh, the disciples, they're traveling. And as they went, they came to a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, not what you might expect. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Hmm. What was Martha thinking? Well, we're told twice, in fact, once by Jesus and once by Luke, that Martha was concerned, overly concerned, unnecessarily concerned about serving beyond what was really needful. And that gives you a big insight into what was going on in her mind. Basically, she was majoring in minors. Mary, her sister, had chosen Jesus as the better thing and had sat at Jesus' feet to hear the words that he would say, you have an opportunity to hear Jesus. And Martha had chosen additional aspects of service, which is not necessarily a bad thing, not inherently a bad thing anyway. But she had chosen, right? There is a level of hospitality that's expected when you invite someone over. It's an accepted thing, and it changes from place to place. But in the Jewish culture at the time, it was basically a large snack. 
right? You would provide bread for your guests and water, usually water mixed with wine or grape juice, which was something they kept on hand generally. And it seems by the way Jesus says it, when he responds to her, he says there, uh, verse 42, but one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part. Now, he seems to be indicating that him, her sitting at his feet and listening to his words was the good part. That's obviously what cannot be taken away from Mary, which is fantastic. But it seems almost like the expectation for service has been fulfilled. Now, the, the idea that I get in this bread and water kind of thing, Martha is perhaps looking for three-course, four-course, five-course meal in our minds, right? The way that we would think about it, right? If Jesus is coming to my house, what am I going to feed him? I'm going to feed him... And what's going through Martha's head? Well, what's going through Mary's head first? Peanut butter and jelly, get them fed, let's sit down and listen. I love it. I love. I also love peanut butter and jelly, just so you know. Simple, simple man right here, right? Not fancy. But Mary had chosen that better thing. She had chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. And what did Jesus want? Obviously, for Martha to be right next to her sister right there. And what Jesus did not want was first Martha to be in the kitchen out away from the people that or where she could hear. But also, she, he certainly did not want Martha getting upset at her sister, especially when Mary had chosen the better thing. You're not going to like my answer, Martha. And this is what I tell people, right? If you don't want to hear the answer, you probably shouldn't ask me the question. If you're not ready to hear the opposite of what you perceive I'm going to say as well as the thing you hope to hear, you better not ask. <laughs> Because you're going to get the answer. So what was going through her mind? I want to give Jesus the best. That's oftentimes what we attribute to matters like this. And is that a good thing? Certainly. Certainly. But the best according to whom? The best according to whom? Martha had perceived that a bigger meal and more serving was better than the simple table setting that would be standard for a situation like this. And sitting at Jesus' feet. But... God's thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher, in fact, than our thoughts, and his ways higher than our ways. Obviously, Jesus would have rather, in the best of situations, Martha would be sitting by her sister learning, choosing the better thing, because Jesus is not fancy. In fact, foxes have holes, Jesus says, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Dude's not fancy. As he's traveling through on his travels... You see him do very few things concerning his own opulence, his own glorification. He simply does what is the will of God. So what is the best? What is the best is a good question to ask. And who determines what best is? I'm sure Martha may have thought, hey, what would I make if Herod were here, if the governor of the province came a-knocking? Or maybe, for whatever reason, <laughs> the Caesar, the Roman emperor, Nero, or, well, at this point, maybe Claudius, shows up at my door. What am I going to serve, right? What am I, how much am I going to clean? What am I going to wear? But you also have to remember who you're dealing with. She's not serving Herod. She's not serving Caesar. She's not serving the President of the United States of America. That would be real awkward because she's back in the first century. She's serving Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have the mindset, the priority, the perspective, or the intention of any of these people. There's also not the same expectation. 
If you're dealing with the President of the United States, I mean, you have to feed not only him, but the people around him. You might very well have to feed the Secret Service. I don't know. And they're expecting a, the publication of everything. The pomp and the circumstance. Does Jesus expect the pomp and the circumstance? I suspect not, considering he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt, not on a war horse. He didn't let everybody know before he entered town. It just kind of spread and out everyone came. But Jesus didn't create influential situations in order to draw the masses. He simply was. And she says, yeah, but the backbreaking labor of serving, that's a small sacrifice to make. Sacrificing comfort should be a small thing. Well, sure. If sacrificing comfort is something that Jesus wanted, then absolutely. Absolutely, then we should do it. But if Jesus isn't concerned, and he certainly doesn't say, hey, you stand over there while your sister sits here. The desire that Jesus had was that the simplest things, the necessary things, would be accomplished and that we would move on with our lives into the things that really mattered. You remember last week we talked about majoring in minors or straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. And that's what Martha was doing. She was straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. She was getting confused on what was really important. And I suspect... That we can do things similar. One of the greatest women that I've ever known, she was an elder's wife for many, many years. And I knew her right after her husband passed. And every time we had a gospel meeting, every time we had a lectureship, every chance she had to invite a visiting preacher and even me frequently over to her house, she had us over. And it was nothing fancy. She'd make two soups. And if you didn't like one or the other, you ate crackers. Good luck. I hope you like them. She made two soups, which I always thought was more than what was necessary. So it was that extra step, right? But she wanted to to feed them. And if she was able to house them, there was a room for it that was reserved for her family when they came. And it was nothing special. It was a bed and some area for you to put your stuff. And it it was quiet because her house was very quiet. But she was hospitable and loving and kind and compassionate And she gave me the great honor many times when she invited the preachers from everywhere else over. She invited me too. And I got to sit with her and we got to talk with this incredible individual and the preacher that came. And it was amazing. And I think that something that easily connects to that. I think something that falls into this same line, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. We'll get as far into this part We'll get this part done, and we may move on. I don't know. This second and third slide might be for a future endeavor. That's fine. I want you to think about something that oftentimes gets associated with this. Just as you would say, well, what should I feed Herod if he came? How do I give God my best in what I feed him? People also think about that in regard to what we colloquially call church clothes. And I'll tell you, there are some places that this would be a pretty controversial topic. And I feel comfortable talking about it here because I don't know what any of you think about it. Ha ha! So you can't be like, well, Chris is picking on me. I don't know what you think about it. Which is why I'm doing it now before I find out. It's called plausible deniability. You should look it up. It's fantastic. What was Martha thinking? The same thing that we oftentimes think. 
We can be majoring in minors. People will use the same arguments in regard to what we wear in services in particular. Think about it. I want to give Jesus my best. I want to give God my best. And that is a fantastic thought. But the best in regard to what? I mean, really think about it. Because if you're going to give God your best, my first question is, how much money do you allocate to this purpose then? If you need to give God your best, what is the best? Because in the classical sense of pretty much every businessman in America, they have determined that a fitted, a custom-fitted Armani suit is about the best you can wear. And that thing will set you back a pretty penny, sometimes several thousand dollars. And if you're not inclined to wear a suit of that nature, then maybe a fashion designer has a pretty dress that would be appropriate for an occasion such as coming to the Lord. Maybe a... I almost said Vera Bradley. She doesn't make clothes, as far as I know. She makes handbags. A Vera Wang. But not a Simply Vera. That comes from Kohl's. That's, an, that's effectively a pseudo knockoff, right? But that's not your best. Right? We're bringing to the Lord our best, and we're coming. we got to up our game then, guys. If, if what we're talking about is bringing our best in regard to the garb that we wear, the clothing that we embody... If that's what's supposed to be our best, that's the standard that we make, then we got to up our game because we can't be pulling off the clearance rack at Walmart anymore. But you got to remember that Jesus isn't fancy. And whether you remember it or not, you'll figure it out quick. I'm not either. In fact, at preaching school, they had three rules as regard to the garb. That is the clothing that you wear. At preaching school, East Tennessee School of Preaching and Missions, they said, there's only three rules. Well, as far as the wardrobe. They said, you wear dress pants. And I said, okay. And they said, you wear a shirt with a collar. And I said, okay. And because polo shirts are less expensive and we were (laughs) stupid poor at the time, uh, I had a lot of polo shirts. (laughs) And I wore polo shirts every day except for the days where I had to serve in chapel. Because when you serve in chapel, the third rule is you have to wear a tie. So if you're leading prayer or you have the auspicious opportunity to speak in chapel, that was awesome. Or you're leading singing, you wear a tie. Well, Chris comes to school every day in a polo shirt and dress slacks. Polo shirt and dress slacks. Have you figured out what happened yet? He didn't check the schedule, or he did, and he misnumbered the days and thought he had chapel prayer the next day. But it was today, and so after the first class is chapel, and at the end of that class, my friend Brian comes to me and he says, Chris, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, getting ready for chapel, I guess. And he goes, you have prayer today. And I go, oh, okay, that's no problem. And he goes, you're wearing a polo shirt. And I go, eh, what about it? It's a collared shirt, right? And they had a box, and it was a punishment box, because if you forgot your tie, you had to wear one of these dumb-looking ties. And at least I could figure out that they were really dumb-looking ties. It was a punishment. We all knew it. And so I'd forgotten my tie. So what do I do? Wearing a polo shirt, dress slacks. I walk over to the tie box. I grab a tie, tie it. I'm wearing a collared shirt, a tie, and dress slacks. I'm fulfilling all three rules that you gave me. And Tom Miller, I'm pretty sure it was Tom, he comes up to me right before chapel starts. And he's like, Chris, what are you doing? And I'm like, getting ready for prayer. And he said, no, you're not. See, he thought Chris was being obtuse. Well, he was. He thought I was being intentionally, annoyingly obtuse. No, this is just standard Chris obtuse, right? I didn't know there was a problem with that. I'd never... Been raised in a family where polo, like my dad at my wedding wore a polo shirt. Like, and I was like flabbergasted. I was like, this dude's wearing a polo shirt. He thinks this fancy. No joke. Yeah. Yeah. 
I had a suit. It was red when I was five. Oh, amazing. I love that suit. I wore it all the time. Well, guess what? I grew out of it. It'd be weird if I still wore it today. <laughs> that would be awkward. But they thought that I was doing it on purpose, and I wasn't. I was just totally oblivious to the fact that you're not supposed to wear ties with polo shirts. This happened several times over the course of me being a preacher. Several times I would get dressed, and I would come upstairs, and my wife would be like, No, nah, you got to change. You can't wear stripes and plaid. And I go, I love stripes. I love plaid. What's the problem? There are several times my daughter has done that to me, my oldest daughter. She says, I'm not leaving the house with you like that. I do not understand fashion. I am not fancy. But we've created what I personally consider some fairly arbitrary rules in regard to church clothes. And we're going to talk about it. And where did church clothes come from? Do you know? Do you know where they came? Because it feels like they've been here all along. But they haven't. Church clothes have only been a thing for about the last 200 years. So in the 1800s, the late 1800s, mechanized opportunities began. And the Industrial Revolution changed the nature of the socioeconomic world in Great Britain and then here in America. And it created what we call the middle class. So before the Industrial Revolution, you had the haves and the have-nots. You had the rich and the poor. Everybody that wasn't rich was poor, which was basically everybody. And they didn't have funds for church clothes. They didn't have additional resources to pay money for things that they didn't absolutely need. And so when people went to services for 1,800 years, they most likely, in a lot of cases, wore clean clothes. But that was the same clothes they wore to work the next day. They wore whatever they were doing. They just wore it because that's all they had. And it created the Industrial Revolution. And this massive issue came up during the Industrial Revolution where the middle class began. And you had this situation where you have the haves and the have-nots. And then the middle class, which some people like to call the people who like to act like the haves. And wearing fancy clothes became a thing. And connecting it to church service became a thing. For 1,800 years, it wasn't a thing. Now today, 200 years after that's begun, it's become a very common thing. So common that it is almost as if it is sacrilegious to some individuals to wear anything but what we would deem church clothes. But you know what Jesus wore when he went to the synagogue, when he went to the temple? He didn't have church clothes. In fact, if he had two tunics, we read earlier John's uh, instance, uh, if you have two tunics, what should you do if you find a person who doesn't have any? You give it to them. So he may occasionally have had more than one, but not for very long. There's absolutely no instance of Jesus changing his clothes into something either more fancy or of any kind of shape or form. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the garb of the priest, for instance. But there was no instance of additional necessary clothing to wear to services. And you look at it, right? You want to give God your best, or Jesus your best, but what does that mean? And what does Jesus want? Those are two very different topics. And that's what tonight and the evening services were meant to kind of bring out. Let's think on a deeper level in the sense of let's talk about spiritual things. There is no more spiritual individual than Jesus Christ and no more physical covenant than the law of Moses. And yet this incredibly spiritual individual in this incredibly physical covenant, he comes to the Lord, comes to his Father in what he has, whatever it is. What would you make or what would you wear if you were going to visit Herod 
Well, Jesus isn't Herod. Jesus doesn't have the same intentions, the same priorities, the same perspective as Herod, thankfully. Oftentimes, the argument concerning church clothes comes down to comfort. People say, well, if, if comfort is so important to you. And I say, to a degree, comfort is important to everyone. I mean, wood's not blue, guys. What are you sitting on right now? You got a cushion for your bum in order to sit there in, what would you call that word? A level of comfort? Like, if comfort is such an issue, if it's such a problem, then we should turn the heat off in the winter, and we should turn the air off in the summer, and we should just live with the ambient temperature of the outside coming in. Because comfort is a problem, I guess. Well, if comfort is such a problem, and experiencing discomfort is such a good thing, then perhaps I've got a solution. We make a suit out of fiberglass insulation. I spent time thinking about this. I'll tell you what. I I said, you know, what would be the most uncomfortable thing that you could ever wear? And I thought a poofy coat made of fiberglass insulation. Could you imagine how uncomfortable? That must mean that you are expressly and unequivocally righteous. We associate coming to this building and having this service time as approaching the God of heaven and earth. But when I go to bed at night, and I'm wearing pajamas, and I pray to the Lord, am I not coming to the Lord of God of heaven and earth? Am I not approaching Him? When I sing songs with my children, traveling from one place to another, am I not approaching the God of heaven and earth with a, with a, with a happy heart and a love and devotion to Him? And I want you to notice something. If you connect your wardrobe with how you give reverence to God, by all means, I don't judge you. That's fine. (laughs) But in James 2, James points out the issue with judging a brother, especially on a measure of something in regard to appearance. He says, if a brother comes in with fancy clothing or fine apparel, you might say, I like fancy clothing. It's the same meaning, but it sounds better. With fine apparel, and you tell him to sit in this good spot, and then another brother comes in wearing filthy garb, wearing shoddy clothing, and you say, you sit there at his footstool. Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? To associate righteousness with the garb or the wardrobe of the individual is to judge by appearance. And Jesus specifically mentions that in particular, that we judge not by appearance, but we judge with righteous judgment. We judge with righteous judgment. And so the person, notice James, doesn't say, hey, you who came in with fine apparel, go change. No, he says, I'm not judging. You do you, right? If that's what you do, then you do that. That's fine. And if the person who comes in with shoddy clothing, he doesn't say, hey, go change. Don't you know better? He says, welcome. Come find a seat. I won't tell you where to sit because that gets dangerous. He just says, welcome. He doesn't want to be a judge with evil Intentions. And think about Martha. At what point does Jesus get on Martha's case? Think about it. Martha's spending this time. Luke even notices, right? Makes mention of it. Martha is spending the time in extra right, service. She's above and beyond. Jesus would rather she be sitting here. Does he say anything? Nope. Because that's a choice that Martha is making. That's a personal decision that is entirely within her control. When does he say anything to Martha? 
when Martha comes with a judgmental spirit and says to Jesus, he bring, she brings Jesus into it, and she judges her sister harshly on something that she has chosen the better thing. I want you to think about that. Then he says, well, since we're talking about this, what I'd really like is for you to pick the better thing. That's what I would like. That's what Jesus says. And we, of course, need to choose the better thing. I think we have time to get through this. But we are so concerned about so many things. We major in all sorts of minors and in many things that aren't things at all to begin with. And what we need to be focused on are the things that are going to benefit the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to prioritize those things. And what do you have, right? Some principles about wardrobe. How about this? Cover your nakedness. Like, seriously, people, let's think about this one. We live in a culture and a community where this is not so highly esteemed as to cover your nakedness. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, they attempted to cover their nakedness with leaves, fig leaves in particular. In verse 21, God gave them fur to cover their nakedness. In Exodus chapter 28, a passage often talked about in regard to the... And I'm not saying we have to abide by the priestly garments. That's an Old Testament thing. But look at what he says there. Exodus 28:41. he says, So you shall put them on Aaron, his clothing, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. Linen trousers to cover their nakedness. Because the outer garments, even though I think it's like two or three layers... Is not enough. You need linen trousers, which is basically uh, underpants. That's effectively how it's being treated in case something happens. And look at how it's described. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. So it gives you a bit of a standard in regard to covering your nakedness. It should go from your waist to your thighs. We would call these shorts, weirdly enough. Covering your nakedness. At least shorts. Let's start with that. The funny thing about many of the arbitrary rules we set, then we change them. We make modifications to them. We say, well, this is the rule that we've set. And if the elders set rules as regard to dress code, I trust them to make good and judicious decisions. The problem is that when we make judgments towards others, we open the door to be harshly judged by the Lord like Martha was. Especially when it's things that we have no jurisdiction over, when it's not applying the law. The second thing we notice is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 in particular. Don't seek to stand out in regard to your wardrobe in particular. Outward appearance, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. The ironic thing about this, church clothes in general, is of all the passages that exist in the scriptures, they all lean in the other direction from church clothes. It's like, don't make a show of your holiness and your connection to God through your wardrobe. But then we made church clothes a thing. And I'm like, how does that disconnect happen so quickly? I don't really understand. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, notice verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. If you notice, that word in the King James, New King James is italicized. That word merely When a word is italicized, it means it's supplied by the translators. It's not there in the original. 
And I haven't seen good reason for why they added it. And I want you to think about that, because if you remove the word merely, if it's supplied by the translate, which it is, it's supplied by the translators. Let your adornment be, uh, let, do not let your adornment be outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. I've seen many arguments for it should be in regard to the outward appearance as well, but this is the priority. Yeah, but that word merely and where all the context comes from is from that single word that is supplied by the translators. Think about that. And in consistency, and being consistent with uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, propriety, moderation, apparel, uh, apparel. just use the word for clothes, that's funny. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, he says, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty and a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. What does the Lord want? What does Jesus want? More than anything, more than fancy clothes, the Lord wants the heart dedicated to him. Wants a heart that is incorruptible, that is gentle and quiet. That's what is precious to the Lord. And you should honor God's wishes. We should stop making up what God wants. Because that happens sometimes. That happens with, you know, like, there have been times where people have given me a present. I won't say who, because that would be unwise. People have given me a present. They said, I thought, Chris, I thought you would really like this. And I said, and I opened it and I said, thank you, because I appreciated the thought. And then I wondered if this person has ever met me. Do you know me? Like, have I given off this uh, idea that this is who I am as a human being? Like, I don't understand. Where do we get some of these ideas about Jesus? It's the same issue we have in people in the world where they're like, well, my Jesus is not like that. And I'm like, well, that's your problem. And you've got your own Jesus instead of following the Jesus that's in the Bible. Mary and Martha, two incredible women. Two women who are engaged in different aspects. And both are fine. But Jesus says, Mary, pick the better thing. So what should we put on? These are the clothes you should wear. And oftentimes I get people who ask me. They call up and they say, I want to come to services. What should I wear? And I go, clothes. Clothes. Please. That would be a far cry from sometimes what comes in the door. I don't know. What should we put on? Galatians 3.27. Wardrobe. How about you put on Christ? Galatians 3.27. Yeah. Ephesians 4.24.6.14. You put on the new man. And this is like right out of the ideology of clothing. He basically makes the new man something you start wearing around and it becomes part of you. You put off the old man, you put on the new man. Ephesians 6.14, you put on the whole armor of God. There's not a physical piece of armor. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not like we got the breastplates in the back. He's talking about spiritual principles. In Colossians chapter 3, let's go there. Jesus, well, Paul tells us that we should dress for success in Christ. But it has nothing to do with our wardrobe. It has everything to do with the attitudes, the dispositions, the characteristics that we embody in our lives. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll stop here for tonight. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, who are you? You are the very children of God. He says, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has complained against another, even as Christ forgave you also, 
you must do. But above all these things, put on, what should you wear? What should you wear here and everywhere else? Not just Christ. You should put on love. Love from a pure heart. Love because it is the perfect bond of peace. (sighs) I'm going to say it again because it bears being said. If you feel compelled to dress nicely to approach the God of heaven and earth, by all means, do so. Do not jeopardize your conscience sake because Chris talked about something one Sunday night. If that is something that you are compelled to do, like Martha was, to choose this thing is fine. I'm not going to judge you for it. I don't think you're less spiritual because you do so. You may have picked it up from an upbringing. It may be something that you connect intentionally and personally and spiritually on your own. And that is fine. Yes, do so. The problem in both directions is the judgmental nature that we can sometimes have in regard to things that God does not tell us. One of the most important things about judgment in the scriptures what they really mean when they talk about judging, when they talk about uh, going to your brother, when they talk about how we approach the throne of God and one another, apply the law. That's it. Don't go beyond the law. So if you can demonstrate something spiritually, biblically, concerning these things, certainly let's talk about it. But if we can't, we make our judgments on a personal level, and we let these things go. And that is the way of Christ. For us to be okay that other people have different opinions, that's okay too. I know it feels crazy, but there are matters of opinions throughout the scripture. There are definitely things that are definitively demonstrated in the scriptures and need to be upheld. For instance, the plan of God unto salvation. You can't eliminate baptism. Seven times in the scriptures, God directly ties baptism to salvation. In particular, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, for all those who were believing unto him, he tells them to repent and let every one of them be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. There's no two ways about it. And there's no way to get into Christ outside of the watery grave of baptism. And so if you are in a position where you need Christ, you need salvation, you need to come to him through baptism, we can help you. Because you're going to do it his way. You're going to do it the way that he demands and the things that he finds important, we need to find important. And the things that he lets go of, we need to let go of. We need to learn to be okay serving the Lord in his capacity. And if we can help you tonight to become a child of God, to continue in your walk with him, to develop faith and a relationship further in your maturity, however we can assist you tonight, I pray that you let us know as together we stand and sing.